Well, the topic for today uh, is a proposition of mine, and I'd like to make a proposition and then show you from God's Word why I think that proposition is true and rather important. So let me start by asking you a couple questions. If you were wondering today how your body was doing, what would you check? You got pulse, you know, blood pressure. They just did a thing on me where they took my blood because I'm changing some insurance and stuff like that. I mean, my LDL and my triglycerides and my this and that. I didn't even know I had that stuff. But, you know, they're checking everything out to see if I'm a good risk or if I'm going to croak tomorrow or anything like that. Your temperature. You would check some things in your body if you wanted to know physically how are you doing. Well, how about if you wanted to know how you were doing financially? What would you check? Well, you might check some bank account balances. Uh, You might check your debt load. Uh, You might check how your investments, your long-term, your retirement investments and stuff like that are doing. And you could come out with, if you had some help or if you're that kind of person, you could come out with a spreadsheet of how am I doing financially. But my question for today is this. If you wanted to know how healthy your faith was, what would you check? How would you know? How would you be able to discern whether your trust in God was strong and vibrant or whether it was a little bit shoddy in these days? If you were here in April, I actually preached a sermon that basically said that your trust in God is the thing that he wants most of all. More than anything else, God wants us to trust him. We start that in a relationship with Jesus Christ by trusting Christ as our Savior for the forgiveness of our sins. Tim talked about that last week. And then on a day-to-day basis, we trust God every day. So today, maybe would be part two of that sermon. How are you doing in that arena? How well well is your soul in the area of trusting God? And my proposition today is this. You, You can't take your pulse. You can't look at your bank account to figure that out. But one of the best ways that I think you can check how your trust factor in God is, is to check out your reaction to adversity in your life. I mean, think about it. All of us, if things are going well, can be, oh, praise the Lord, everything, yeah, it's great, woo But when things are going really poorly, And when the finances go in the tube, when the health goes in the tube, when relationships go down the drain, whatever the adversity that might come into your life, how is our trust factor in those days? It's pretty easy to say we love God. I say it. But I know it's not always very deep, very pure. But 
Maybe how we react to adversity would help reveal to us how are we really doing in trusting the Lord. So to flesh this out, I want to start by looking at a few stories that many of you who have been believers in Jesus for a long time know some of these stories. And I want to look at what people not only said, but how they showed their trust in God. And just like a couple weeks ago when I was preaching, I'm going to be bouncing all over. If you want to keep going with me with your phone or your Bible, you can quick turn. Otherwise, Lord willing, uh, it'll all be up here. So we're going to start in Daniel chapter 3. So if you remember in the book of Daniel, we have Daniel uh, and hundreds of other people from the people of God of Israel who have been taken captivity to Babylon. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego particularly have been called into God's, uh, excuse me, the king's service to be his advisors. So while they're in captivity in all of this, something happens. Nebuchadnezzar the king gets this great idea and he builds this monstrous golden statue And he tells everybody, you are going to bow down and worship this statue when the music plays. And so they do that, and the violinist gets going, and the flute is, and they start playing, and everybody bows down except, you remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, where was Daniel? We don't know. Daniel wasn't there. He was probably off doing the king's business somewhere else. But his three buddies are like, we're not going to bow to the statue. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is furious. And we pick up the story in chapter 3 and verse 13. It says, Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true that you do not serve my God or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sounds of the horn and the flute and the zither and the lyre and the harp and the pipes and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship that image, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So what would you do? What would I do? I'd be like, let me think about this. Uh, Bow or dead? The answer these guys give the king is an incredible answer, and it it shows that they had an incredible trust in their God. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter, because if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, The God we serve, Yahweh, is able to save us from it. And he will, in our opinion, he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we don't have a guarantee from God of this. We just think he will. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the image of gold that you have set up. So think about their faith. Number one, they knew God could save them. We have a God that could save us from this fire. Maybe you don't have a God, but we do. 
Second of all, they didn't presume upon God. It's not like, well, God's promised us anytime we have a problem, he's going to rescue us from. We're not positive, but we know our God, and we are going to honor him, and we're going to do what's right, and that's what's going to happen. Well, obviously, if you know the story, Nebuchadnezzar gets more furious. He pumps up the, uh, the oven, the furnace, many times hotter than it usually is. So hot that when the soldiers threw these three guys in the furnace, the soldiers who did it burned up, and they threw them in the furnace. And then most of you know the story that as they looked in the furnace, they started counting. One, two, three, four. And Nebuchadnezzar assumed it was an angel. We're not positive biblically who it was. It might have been the pre-incarnate Christ. Could have been an angel. Looked like a god in his mind. And Nebuchadnezzar, you know, you guys, come out. And he looked at them. They weren't burnt. Their clothes weren't singed. They weren't even smelly. And they come out, and he is just, oh my word. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent, he thought, his angel to rescue his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. And therefore, I decree that the people of any nation language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego should be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save like he has. And then the king promoted these guys in the province of Babylon. So a pretty wonderful ending, obviously. But remember, when they stood up to the king, they didn't know what the ending was going to be. They might have burned in the furnace. They didn't know. But they said, we have a God who can. We, we trust him that he can do this. Number two, we believe that he's got our back and he's going to take care of us. But even if he allows us in this situation to die, we are not going to do it. We are going to honor our God. I call that a pretty healthy faith in God. The barometer showed that they were doing really well. Well, how about another guy in the Old Testament? His name is Job. And many of you know the story, Job chapter 1. Satan and God have a conversation, and God says, Have you noticed my servant Job and what a wonderful guy he is? And he follows me in every way, and he's just the greatest servant of mine. And Satan's like, Well, yeah, but you give him everything. He, he gets all the cattle and the wonderful stuff and nothing ever happens to him. Let me take some of that stuff away and we'll see how Job does. And so God allows him first. You can't touch Job, but you can touch his stuff. And through a series of events, we see that his children are killed, his cattle, his sheep, all of his livestock are taken, houses are wrecked in all of this, and people come and tell him about it. Verse 20 of chapter 1, at this, after Job has heard about all of this awful stuff, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. That was a sign back then of, I'm in mourning, I'm, I'm not happy about this, I'm in grief. 
And then he fell to the ground and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, everything I have is from God, and the Lord has taken away. I know God allowed this. May the name of the Lord be praised, and in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrong. Well, then in chapter 2, Satan comes back, and, and God's like, well, do you see? And Satan's like, yeah, but you didn't let me touch him. God says, okay, I give you permission. You can touch Job. You can't kill him, but you can touch him. And many of you know the story. He got sores all over his body. That just makes me cringe when I think he took shells and was scraping the sores off his body. Then his wife gets in the act. Job, are you crazy? Just curse God and die. If this is the kind of God you got, why would you even want one? Chapter 2, verse 10. Job replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And I can just hear Job's mind whirring like, What's going on here? Why is all this happening? I don't have a clue. And in fact, if you know the book, for the next 35 chapters, some friends come and help him try and figure it out. And their answer is, you must have done something wrong, Job. And Job's like, well, I don't think so. And then he gets a fourth friend who kind of clears that up. And at the end of the book, the interesting thing is, God never explains it to him. God never comes and says, well, Job, what happened was, you know, Satan came and talked to me, and I don't No, he never does that. He basically just says to Job, um, Job, where were you when I made the world? And when I told the seas they could go this far and no further and stuff, where, where were you? And Job starts thinking, and it's like, you know, even though I can't figure this out, I got a God who knows what's going on, and, and I can trust him. And Job's faith in God and his trust in the Lord's love and sovereignty in his life even went to the point of him going, I have no idea what's going on. Job's trust health was pretty good. Well, those are two from the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? I think of a guy named Paul. Used to be named Saul, became Paul, became the greatest evangelist probably of all time, led more people to Christ, started more churches in that first century. But in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, You know, as I'm doing this for the Lord, it was not all roses. This was not like a cakewalk where because I'm serving the Lord, everything just went really well. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 24. While I'm serving the Lord, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, bandits, countrymen, Gentiles. I've been in danger in the city, in the country, at sea. In danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. It's like, 
whoa, this is the guy who's serving the Lord. And in the midst of that, all these things were going on. But Paul's like, you know, I may not understand it, I may not like it, but I trust God that he knows what he's doing. But there's a sense in which, as I think about all those things, those are external things. So they're things that are happening to him from the outside, and, and those are hard. But what about the more internal stuff, the personal stuff that we have to deal with? Well, Paul also trusted God when it got personal. In the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's talking about how God has blessed him with incredible things and revelations about what's going to happen and all that God is doing in these days and all this. In verse 7, he says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, how God is using him, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And we don't know what that was. Some people think it was a lisp, his inability to maybe speak correctly. Some people think it was a limp, like he couldn't walk well. Or but he knew it was from Satan, and it was literally a thorn in my side or a thorn in the flesh. Well, what would you do if you had a thorn in the flesh? Well, hello, we, we would... Uh, could you take that thorn out, please? And he asked that, verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take that thorn in, the <laughs> thorn in the flesh away from me. Nothing wrong with that. Just ask God, you know, could, could, could we take this away? I know you can. But what was God's answer? But God, verse 9, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And I'm sure Paul, oh goody, Paul said. I'm, I'm really thrilled with that. Not. He, that wasn't the answer he wanted. But God said, I just want you to know that because of that thorn in the flesh and your weakness in this, it just shows more clearly to the world how incredibly powerful I am. I think of back in my seminary days at Dallas Seminary, the guy who taught evangelism talking like this. And he was born without being out of the hair. And I remember just thinking, <laughs> who would have less ability naturally to get the gospel across than somebody who has a, a, a trouble talking, even worse than I do sometimes? And I thought, but you know what? Because of that, God is, people are like, oh my gosh, look what God's doing through this guy. And he didn't pick the most eloquent person to do it. He picked somebody that had a thorn in his tongue. And Paul says, when I am weak, it just shows how strong God is. And so what was Paul's final answer? Verses 9 and 10, Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then because of God, 
I am strong. So we see that Paul had a trust in God. I don't like it. I'm asking for it to go away. But I see how God is using this. And if that's how God wants to do it, that is okay with me. So he had a great trust factor. The barometer of his faith was pretty high in doing well. But he also had one other thing that I look at as I listen to Paul. He understood that the world didn't revolve around him. You know, I don't know about you, but that is one of the hardest things for me to constantly remember. The world does not revolve around me. It revolves around God and his plans. And sometimes God just might be using me in a way that I'm not necessarily thrilled about or in a timing way or something like that. God, could you hurry up or whatever? But Paul says, this isn't all about me, Bubba. This is about God. And if he chooses to give me a thorn or allow me to be beaten or hungry or whatever, that is okay. Now obviously... There's a lot of places I could go in the Bible to show you people who their barometer of faith in God was pretty low at that time. They weren't doing a great job of trusting God. We've got Adam and Eve with the fruit thing, Abraham and Sarah taking things into their own hands with Hagar, Moses hitting the rock rather than speaking to the rock like God told him to, the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, all these different examples. But I thought, you know, I don't need to go through bad examples because you and I are bad examples at times ourselves and we know what that looks like, so I don't have to go through all of that. We can see in our own lives times that we're just like, I'm really having a hard time trusting God in this. So the question on the table today is this. How much do I really trust God? On a day-to-day -day basis, how healthy is my faith in my God? And I'm not saying that how you react to hard times is the only way to measure that. That's not what I'm saying. But I think it is a really good way. If you want to know how strong your faith is in these days, seeing how you react when things go bad is a good way. When you lose your job and you're looking at your bank account going, oh my word, there's not much there and man, I don't know about how are we going to make... Those are days when you can say, how much do I really trust God? Maybe... You found out something's wrong with your body. I find that out on a pretty daily basis, and it's little things, but what if it was some big thing? I've been amazed. I told you in a sermon, I think in April, my aunt, 87 years old, just visited her yesterday. She falls, shatters her wrists, breaks her hip. She was here to find like a, a nursing facility to be around her relatives, she can't get out of bed herself. She can't hardly move her hand and all this. And we visited her yesterday, and she's pretty upbeat. She's not happy about it. This isn't what she had planned. But God obviously allowed it. And I'm like, wow, would I be like that if all that happened to me? Or maybe in my arena these days, you know, my children are grown, and I know many people who have grown children, they've watched a child walk away from the Lord. They're off doing the world thing rather than following Jesus and it's just driving us crazy. Where's our faith 
in those days. So let's say that you would look at your ability to handle adversity and you're kind of saying to yourself, honestly, I'm not sure I'm doing so well. I'm not sure that my faith quotient, my barometer of my trust in God is where it should be. What's wrong? Well, I thought about that, and I thought there's maybe three things that I could think of to help you. Number one, if you're not handling adversity very well, and you're kind of seeing that your faith in God is waning in those days, maybe you don't know him very well. My old boss, when I was a youth pastor, like Pastor Tim, decades ago, he had a saying, it was, the most important thing you will ever think about is what you think about when you think about God. Long way of saying, your concept of who God is plays a huge factor in your day-to-day life. If you don't know that your God is sovereign, omnipotent, then you're going to have a hard time trusting, oh my gosh, can God take care of this problem? I don't know. Or maybe if you don't know that he is a loving, caring, gracious God, you might wonder in the midst of it, well, does he even care? Or maybe you don't know that he's wise and omniscient, and you might have a hard time trusting, well, maybe he loves me and maybe he can do something about it, but... Is he doing it the right way? Can I really trust him that he knows the best for my life? So I thought of an example and I thought, you know, if I were at a park and I did this in seminary and in college sometimes, you just go to a park and a bunch of guys get a pickup game playing basketball. And, you know, you get three guys on your team, and so there's four of you, and you're waiting for one more, and there's five of those guys, and you're looking at those guys, and you're going, man, those guys are a lot bigger than my guys, and they seem to be doing pretty well, and you're wondering, ooh, I wonder how this game is going to go. And all of a sudden, they say, oh, number 10 just arrived. He's on your team. And you turn around, and it's LeBron James. All of a sudden, my faith factor just went really high of how my team's going to go. It doesn't matter how bad I am. I am deadly within three feet of the basket, I'll tell you that. But LeBron's a little better than that. But think about this. What if you didn't know who LeBron was, and he's just some guy walking in, and you might look at him and go, well, I, I hope he can help our team. And the rest of us who know him well are going, whoo, we're in. Maybe if you're having trouble in adversity, it's because you don't know God very well and you're not like, whoo, because I got a God who can take care of this problem. Second reason that you might have a hard time facing adversity is that you haven't learned the lesson I learned from studying Paul in all that he did, that it's not all about you. That at this moment in your life, when you're having trouble trusting God in your adversity and stuff, you're really struggling with kind of being self-centered. I want what I want when I want it. 
I want my miracle now, not later. I want that new job now. I want to be healed in this way. I want my kid to turn around in this way. And it's kind of like this is just all about me and what I want. And I don't know about you, but as I've looked in God's word, I don't see those promises It's kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I know my God can save us, but he has not promised that he will. We didn't get promised that if we get some disease or something terrible happens that God's going to just jump in and do a miracle. But that's what we want, of course. And sometimes we want to trust God for specific outcomes that he's really never said are promises for us. Now, there are things that we can trust God for. I mean, think of them. Hebrews chapter 13, God said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. In the midst of your struggle, he's always going to be there. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll provide a way out that you can stand up under it. You go through a hard time, and God said, in the midst of this temptation to not trust me and stuff, I'm going to be there for you, and I'm going to help you to be able to trust you if you'll hang in there with me. Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things, God causes for good for those who love him and are called according. For his children, he works anything out for the best. There's a conditional one, Philippians 4, that says don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And then if you will take these things to God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mine in Christ Jesus. So there are promises that we can hold on to They're just not the specific promises that God is going to heal us right away, turn our wayward son or daughter, change that financial situation, heal that relationship, boom. Sometimes God works through strange ways and we need to trust him. And then there's a last issue of kind of people that are struggling with trusting God It's because they think he's proven that he's not trustworthy. That there's something that has happened in their past that was so bad that they put a nail in the ground at that point in their life and said, I do not have a God that I can depend on. A child has died, a spouse has left. The job that I thought was the perfect job to retire in was taken away from me. Part of my body is falling apart. I'm in financial ruin. And they said, you know, my God is not trustworthy. And I thought I would never... Excuse me, and, and I would never try and diminish the pain of these things. I'm not trying to say, oh, that there's, there's no big deals. But the answer to those people in the midst of that is really pretty much the same of what we've already said. Remember who your God is 
And remember that though he has promised to always hold you and be there through the storm, he has never promised to calm miraculously every storm in our lives. For those of you who are old enough, he has not promised us a rose garden in every day of our life. I go back to a goofy beaver in C.S. Lewis's Chronicle of Narnia. And he's talking about the Jesus figure in the, in the book. It's Aslan the lion. And, and the children ask Mr. Beaver, is that God figure, Jesus figure, is, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver looks at him and says, no, he is not safe. He is good but he's not safe. He's not a lion. You can grab his tail and make him do what you want. He's not a butler. He's not tame, but he is good, and he will take care of you. He's just not predictable like we want God to be. And I certainly wish that I could explain to you your heartaches and your pains. I can't even figure out all of mine. But I'm trying my best to say I know who my God is. And I know that he has never promised every day to be rosy and wonderful. And I am going to trust him through the storm. And he may miraculously come in and calm the storm. But he may let me go through that storm for a long time. But he promises in the midst of that, he is going to hold me and get me through, and I am going to come out the other side remembering that I have a great, great God. Let's pray.